This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in to the podcast. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. Usually Don West and I are joined by our friend Steve Moses to explore high-profile self-defense cases and talk about the lessons learned before concealed carriers. Uh, But, you know, this podcast is designed to help give concealed carriers and armed defenders an idea of what elements what facts, what what things that unfold during a real-life self-defense incident, how that plays out in the legal defense of that armed defender after the fact, right? So we're looking for lessons learned so that uh, you guys, as concealed carriers or armed defenders, can have a perspective of what how your actions will be perceived after a life or death self-defense incident. And one thing that we don't necessarily always talk a lot about on this podcast is how your behavior and your interaction with law enforcement in the moments, minutes, hours, and days after a self-defense incident can impact how the police investigation proceeds and how ultimately a criminal defense can be mounted should you face prosecution for your use of deadly force. So in that vein, we get a lot of questions about how should one act after a self-defense scenario. And CCW Safe has put together a list of 10 things to do in the wake of a self-defense shooting over the next Oh, a couple months interspersed with our normal podcasts. We're going to, Don West and I, explore these a couple elements of a time. Today, we're going to talk about points one and two. Point one is to make sure that everyone is safe immediately following a self-defense incident. Point two is be the first to call 911. And in the course of our conversation, we're going to reference a number of the high-profile cases that we've explored in depth on this podcast. One of them is the Jairal Lee case. Uh, I mistakenly refer to the attacker, the decedent in that case, as Michael Epps. The man's name is Quinton Epps. Uh, so my apologies to Michael Epps, who is a uh, stand-up comedian and actor. You, uh, if anyone's a fan of the 1990s cult film Friday, you know Michael Epps as the guy you were disappointed to see in the sequel instead of Chris Tucker. So, anyways, thanks for accommodating that slip of the tongue. Um, but here is my conversation with Don West about what to do in the wake of a self defense shooting. If you've shot somebody in self-defense, you've committed a homicide, and the police are going to come and investigate that. And either it's going to be charged as a crime, or it's not. And they don't always just, they don't always tell you that they're not going to charge it. 
Well, you can almost expect to be arrested, detained at a minimum, perhaps arrested, taken to jail, and booked, regardless of what the outcome may be, which could be weeks if charges are actually not filed or filed into missed early months, depending on the jurisdiction, how long it takes for these cases to get to court, but it's not unusual for it to be years. A year and a half or so is not at all unusual between the incident and when a jury trial might actually take place for the jury to decide whether you acted in lawful self-defense. What's really interesting to me is I try to sort of parse this out in these various steps before and after. We know that the before stuff that we talk about, how you present yourself on social media, uh, things you may have said that give the prosecutor some glimpse into who they think you are uh, becomes just as critically important in the moments following the shooting. Uh, and all of it becomes with an eye uh, toward trying to figure out what were you facing at that moment and what were you thinking at that moment and whether or not the circumstances of that moment allowed you to use deadly force in defense of yourself. Unless you make a statement where you say specifically, this is what I was thinking, this is what I did, and this is why I did it, almost all murder-type cases, criminal homicide-type cases, require the police initially, the prosecutor, then ultimately the jury to figure out what was going on inside your head. And that's often through circumstantial evidence. Because unless you say it, which would be direct evidence, circumstantial evidence are those fragments of information that when assembled create this sort of linked chain that make it clear what was going on at the moment. So that's why prosecutors will look back to see what kind of person is this? What have they said in the past that gives them some indication of what their mindset may have been going into something like this? And then depending on how you interact with the police, how you interact following the incident with social media, family, friends, uh, all even to the point of what the bumper stickers you may have on your car or your attitude, simply how are you expressing your own emotions in the immediate aftermath of the incident? How does all that fit together to give the prosecutor some clue, some insight into what was happening at the moment that the trigger was pulled? It, it's fascinating, it's complicated, and uh, I think fortunately someone that thinks this stuff through in advance will be able to appreciate how some of these things can become critically important and may also be misleading. And the last thing you want to do is create a, a trail of information or create a, a context that's misleading about what you are thinking and doing, certainly if it's misleading to your detriment. Right, so if, the, if anything that you say or do doesn't quite fit what the investigators see the facts to be, then they're going to suspect foul play. Uh, especially 
especially if it comes down to the basics of them trying to figure out what was going on and you've made statements, uh, especially if you've made statements early on before you've had a, an opportunity maybe even to fully process what just happened and then information that you provide turns out to be inconsistent with physical evidence or forensic evidence, that becomes a big problem for, for your lawyer to sort out. If you've said something that is contradicted by physical evidence, it's very hard to challenge physical evidence if it's within that realm of physical evidence that's well accepted historically by the courts and something that's forensically been proven and sound. So, Yeah, you can quickly misstep if you're not very conscious of how this stuff plays out and how significant the moments uh, after the incident will, will become. Sure, and I think a lot of the CCW safe members, a lot of concealed carriers have a sense that those those moments and and hours after a shooting are very important and we get a lot of questions about that. And because of that, our our friends over at CCW Safe, our colleagues there, have sent us this list of, of ten things to do after a self defense incident and i think this list is a good set of guidelines that open up uh, a good conversation uh, about what to do in the wake of a shooting these aren't i don't think they're necessarily comprehensive or meant to be even a step-by-step -step guide but these are things that i think any concealed carrier or armed defender should think about uh and and have an idea of how they'll handle these things in the wake of a shooting. And I thought it'd be good to kind of, you know, talk through these uh, points one through 10. You game for that, Don? Uh, I am, absolutely. I, I, I've seen the list you're talking about. I think that it's very well put together, but as you say, it's not, it's not as comprehensive as maybe it will be after we talk about it a little bit, because you, each one of these issues or elements uh, are worthy of a, a fairly detailed conversation in and of themselves, but I do think that each identifies an area that's critically important, uh, issues that may very well become what makes or breaks a given self-defense case. Well, here's the first one. Number one on the list is make sure that you are safe, right? So if you've just shot somebody in self-defense, uh, you want to know that the threat is, in fact, over for you and for your family or for anyone else around. And I think you want to make sure that there's nobody else besides this person that poses a threat to you. Um, and if you're not in a safe place, you want to get in a safe place uh, before you can do anything else at all. Is that your read on... on Tip number one. Yeah, including the fact that although you may have shot someone and they may appear to be seriously injured or even not moving much, there's certainly no guarantee that they aren't in their own strategic way trying to lull you into a moment where they can then surprise you and spring on you or either to get away 
or to do you harm. Uh, they may have another weapon in their pocket that they're able to get to. So I think the point is be absolutely sure that the person that attacked you from which you had to defend yourself is truly neutralized so that you aren't inadvertently putting yourself and your family in uh, a great risk. Now, of course, what does that mean? Uh, it means that they don't have access to another weapon. It may mean that you can see their hands. You may very well, if they are injured but not incapacitated, give them some direct orders at gunpoint. Make sure they put their body in a certain position where you can see their hands and that they can't access other weapons. And hold them in that what would otherwise be a safe position until the police get there. Uh, I think this comment also extends to that there may be other people there. If it was a crime being committed with an accomplice, there may be accomplices there that could sneak up and, and attack you once they realize that their cohort has been uh, injured or, or shot. And maybe just the circumstances of the situation, the locale, uh, might be uncomfortable and it might actually be dangerous. And while we would rarely, rarely suggest that you leave uh, a scene, there could be that moment where you need to get away, a little ways anyway, to be sure that you are safe as you decide what to do next, which of course typically means you call the police. So think about that stuff, uh, and if you should wind, wind up in a situation where you have shot somebody, incapacitated them, seriously injured them, that doesn't mean that it's 100% over. There's one thing that you absolutely don't do and that's the one thing that we both have seen cases where someone is shot, justifiably has shot someone who has attacked them, may very well have been attacked with a gun or a knife. They were truly in that life-threatening, imminent moment when they had to use deadly force to save themselves. The person is incapacitated, the threat is neutralized, there's no articulable basis to claim that this person continues to be a threat and they do what is absolutely fatal to a self-defense case. They go over out of fear, out of anger, and perhaps the misguided belief that they can legally do this and they shoot him again. You know, they, they do that coup de grace kind of shot we talked about a case in Oklahoma City, didn't we? Sure, the Jerome Erzlin case. Yeah, the undoing of the pharmacist. Uh, so, so no double taps. That might be okay in zombie land. <laughs> in the zombie apocalypse, the second rule might be double tap. But in, in reality, in civilized America, in self-defense land, uh, if, the, if the person's down, they're, they're down, and, and you don't shoot them again to neutralize the threat or neutralize make sure they're neutralized at this point it's you want to see their hands you want another weapon is secure and away from them and then if it's not then then you are at a point where you may want to get away you know what you're talking about those scenarios and it made me think of a couple of cases we talked about the you just mentioned jerome ersland who who shot 
a robber who came into his, an armed robber who came into his pharmacy, uh, and he, that kid hit the ground, he got hit in the head, but not fatally, and then was incapacitated on the ground. He chased the other robber out, came back in, and then final, shot, fatal shots into him. We talked about, uh, just recently, the Byron uh, Smith case, where after he had disabled the people who had broken into his home forcibly, uh, he basically executed them. And then there was the Jarrell Lee case. And, and this has a couple of those elements that you talked about, Don, where Jarrell Lee, his cousin, got into a fight with another guy. That guy pulled out a gun, ended up shooting his cousin. Jarrell Lee then shot that guy. There's other people around. Nobody died immediately of the gunshots. Um, but the the guy Jarrell Lee shot, his name was Michael Epps. He hits the ground. Gerald Lee shoots him while he's on the ground. Uh, doesn't kill him immediately, but then everybody runs because <laughs> there had just been a gunfight, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. And, and so now you've got a, a situation, and we know from our study of that case that uh, one of the things that the jurors considered deeply was the fact that the prosecutor made a point that there was an imprint of uh, a bullet underneath Epps' body, meaning that Gerald Lee shot him while he was on the ground. And, and so there's an instance where you have a shot too many, and then Gerald Lee, I think we can forgive him for leaving the scene where there was just a gunfight, and his cousin was shot, and turned out to be fatally when he was found dead behind a house nearby, uh, that he went to safety, but then he made this mistake of of not doing step number two, which was calling 911. Let me loop back to one other comment on this about the threat being neutralized and being sure that you don't use excessive force after that moment, that you basically don't shoot someone who's unarmed, incapacitated, someone who is no longer an immediate threat, even if just moments ago, seconds ago, the person was fully able, willing, and intended to take your life. Once they are no longer that threat, of course, you you can't use deadly force against them. And we talked about the attacker that was injured and on the ground or otherwise not immediately a threat, but the same rule would apply if if you are in a situation and are threatened with lethal force yourself and you display and use lethal force against them, but in a non-fatal way, and as a result of your use of force, they take off and run, that they decide they don't want any part of this. They've changed their mind now. So all of a sudden, a guy that was holding a gun on you, uh, demanding your wallet, may even have fired the gun. Uh, this, this is my example. There is in the context of the aggravated felony notion of there's lots of ways, lots of places where you can use deadly force to prevent certain crimes being committed against you, separate and apart from the use or threatened use of deadly force against you. But the context often takes place in a robbery situation. Somebody displays a weapon, they intend to rob you, they're trying to rob you, 
and you would have the right legally to use deadly force, but all of a sudden they hightail it and run. Or even if after you shoot them, or if it's not non-fatal shot, they leave and they're on their way, you cannot shoot uh, someone in that situation because they don't have to be laying on the ground not to be a threat to you at that moment. If it's clear that they are not a threat, if it's clear they're trying to get away and do not pose a threat to you. Now, obviously, you'd have to evaluate that moment exactly, whether they were just getting some cover to attack you again or, or those kinds of things. But typically, when someone is just trying to get away, they're trying to get away. And you, the last thing you need is when law enforcement shows up and they see this guy lying on his belly with a shot uh, in his back and says, well, why did you shoot him? And if your answer is because he was going to get away, uh, you're, you're just as guilty of that crime as if you had done that when he was standing in front of you and was not posing a threat. Yeah. So. We spoke recently to one of our firearms instructors, uh, one of the experts that we talked to on the show, and, and they talked about how the, the point of self-defense is to break contact. So however you've done it, once you've broken contact uh, and you need to get into a safe place. And, and I, I think about like the Zach Peters case, right? He had a AR-15, shot three people who had broken into his house in the middle of the day. And then once he saw that they weren't the immediate threat to him, he locked himself in his room and called 911. And, and he had broken contact and... He didn't know if they were still alive or dead, but he'd gotten himself out of there to a place where he felt more secure, a place that was defensible, and and then did the next thing, which is to call 911. So maybe it's a good time to talk sure. more about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's on the list too, isn't it? About calling 911. Yeah, number two is to be the first to call 911. Yeah. And we looked at a Marissa Alexander case for this because Marissa Alexander was at home, her estranged husband came over, confronted her over something, allegedly attacked her. She escaped, got her gun from the dashboard or from the glove compartment of her car, confronted him in the kitchen, fired what she described as a warning shot that missed him by several inches, and then he left the house. In her mind, she had solved the problem. He left and she went about her business. What she didn't know is that he called 911, who then had police respond to what they thought was basically an active shooter at that house. They had the place surrounded. They kept calling her cell phone, and she didn't answer because she didn't want to until finally her sister said, Hey, girl, you got police surrounding the house. They think you're an active shooter. You've got a problem. And so there you, you went, because she didn't call 911 to report the discharge of the firearm, all of a sudden, the whole police department seems to be out at her property looking at her as a, a lunatic with a gun. That's about the best example of what can go wrong if you're not the first one to call 911. You go from being uh, legitimately the victim to perhaps uh, a, a lunatic aggressor. Well, let's break that down a little bit. When of the different possible scenarios where you would need to call 911 and what the, the circumstance is. 
the first obvious one that we usually talk about when we're describing a self-defense scenario is that that you are attacked in some capacity, you are threatened uh, with an imminent uh, use of deadly force, that you have the legal right to deploy deadly force in your defense, and you do, and you shoot and seriously injure or kill your attacker. So typically, at that point, you're somewhere, that person is there, and they are gravely injured, if not dead, and now, essentially, the smoke has cleared, and you have to decide what to do. Obviously, it's important to get the authorities, it's important uh, to report what happened to you to establish your role in these circumstances. There may or may not be witnesses to some part of this. The witnesses may or may not be reliable. And I think it's critically important, as, as do those others that describe those moments after the shooting to establish your role to clearly identify yourself to the police as the person that was attacked, as the person that was required to use deadly force to protect yourself, and ultimately to be in a position to, uh, well, what? What would be the idea that you're the person they're looking for when they get well, there? Well, so sure, you not mistaken. You frame the nature yeah. of the investigation. Let's look at the Michael Dunn case, right? Michael Dunn shot Jordan Davis in what was known as the the loud music trial, right? It was the, it was Thanksgiving weekend. Dunn's coming back from a, a wedding. He pulls in to this gas station next to Jordan Davis. They're playing super loud music. Dunn says, can you turn it down? Jordan Davis freaks out, starts shouting threats, starts shouting uh, swear words, threatens Dunn's life, allegedly, and then Dunn ends up feeling, according to him, afraid for his life, pulls out his gun and shoots Davis. The teenagers in the car pull off, Davis dies later, and Dunn, he gets his girlfriend in the car, and he leaves uh, and goes back to his hotel, never calls 911. Never realized until later on that he had even uh, hit somebody or, or, or killed somebody. But when police caught up with him very later the next day, they had been up all night investigating a murder where the shooter fled the scene. And in Michael Dunn's mind, he had defended himself. That was his case. That's what he presented to a jury at trial. Uh, so the police were investigating a murder. <laughs> he he wanted to defend self-defense. It's a terrible place to start the interaction with police off with. That, that's exactly right. By the time those several hours had passed, they had collected forensic evidence. They had already interviewed some witnesses there from the convenience store. They would have looked at the vehicle. They would have talked to the other people in the car. They would have, without any evidence to the contrary, have begun to form uh, their theory of the case and looked at evidence that, from their perspective, would have been very consistent with what uh, the kid said happened without any... Whereas, if he had stayed there on the scene 
and when and and been the first to call 911 and when police arrived explained to them that this kid was threatening him that he that this kid presented something that he thought was the barrel of uh, uh perhaps a shotgun and was about to get out of his car to approach him then the police would then have that as the framework the paradigm for which they're they're, they're going to look for evidence that either supports that or refutes that instead of just assuming immediately that this is some sort of uh a homicide so some sort of some sort of murder they may very well have had access to the vehicle early on uh, looking for something that was the weapon that Dunn claims to have seen or something where he may have thought well, what he may have thought was the weapon and connected up some of his idea with what happened, uh, what his statement was with actual physical evidence. Sure. We talked about the Jarrell Lee case just a few minutes ago. He didn't call 911 on that one. And when police finally picked him up, they they wanted to charge him not just for the murder of Michael Epps, but also for the murder of his own cousin, who we found out later Michael Epps had actually killed. So not only in that case, because he didn't climb a one, he was almost about to be pinned with the murder of his own cousin, who we know was at the hands of somebody else. You might consider this to be a bit of uh, an extreme scenario, but we have those two cases, right, where the charging decision may have been different. We Certainly the perspective and the perception of those doing the investigation may have been completely uh, different had either of these, these fellows called the police and given an opportunity for the police to begin to investigate uh, their, you know, their version of what happened. If nothing else, to claim that they that they acted in self-defense, they could point to a little bit of evidence. And we'll talk in more detail about how you interact with the police when they appear on the scene, and um, some sort of limits to that kind of communication. But we have to emphasize the importance of initiating that call. I I do think, though, Sean, that depending on the situation, depending on who's there, how it unfolded, whether there are still people on the scene that could be a risk, you have options. Uh, there's no requirement that you be the person that calls 911. You could ask someone to call 911. Uh, in the Dunn case, his girlfriend was there with him he could certainly have asked her to do that. Uh, in other cases, there were those that could, uh, a situation where you might actually direct a bystander to call 911 and provide that person with enough information that the police know who they're looking for and what briefly happened. Sure. There's some, some advantages to that, I think. It, keeps you out of the direct loop where you're trying to manage what's happening at the scene and also talk to the police. Uh, of course, a 911 call is recorded in its entirety. And anything and you say can and will be used against you. <laughs> yeah, whether or not you're of good sound presence of mind and whether you get things exactly right or if you mix up some things, which is entirely possible, if not likely, Yes, that's recorded, and that will become a piece of evidence in the case. And, of course, 
Well, just that there there might be uh, some an attacker there at the scene who's being held by gunpoint. You know, you may be hold have to hold that person, or they you may be even trying to provide some limited medical services, frankly, if the person is injured and not a threat. So there's lots of stuff going on, and just because you can't or you choose not to make that call yourself, it's critically important that the call get made. The call get made, and, and that later it can be shown that it was you who initiated it. Because, you know, we see the ones where they don't call 911, that's like consciousness of guilt evidence in some cases, right? Where a prosecutor is going to say the fact that you weren't the one that called meant that maybe you felt that you had done mm -hmm. something wrong. And that's hard to overcome. Well, let's go right... Yeah, let's go back to what is self-defense. Self-defense, We you mentioned earlier in this uh, podcast that it's essentially a homicide. Uh, a homicide is when someone is killed at the hands of another. It's a criminal homicide, meaning a crime if someone is killed at the hands of another who didn't have the legal justification to do that. So if you eliminate self-defense as the reason why you did what you did and only look at what you did, you've just committed a crime. Any number of degrees of crime, perhaps, from manslaughter to second degree to even uh, premeditated murder, and you are facing potentially any or all of those charges, depending on how the event unfolded, unless and until you had a legal justification for what you did. And the only legal justification in the context of our conversation is that you were facing an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death, or that you were attempting to prevent the commission of an aggravated felony and you had to use deadly force to protect yourself and others. If that falls through, if any part of your self-defense claim falls through, then what you're left with is the murder charges, some degree of criminal homicide. And if you don't assert that early on, and you do like Michael Dunn did, and you leave, and then it looks to the police as an afterthought. It looks to the police like, well, he couldn't come up with anything better. He didn't stay at the scene and tell us what happened and how it happened uh, to begin the process of the self-defense investigation. It's almost like, well, he didn't have anything else he could say, so he might as well call it self-defense. And that's a terrible, terrible position to start from, as you well said. Before we wrap up this conversation about being the first to call 911, there are also some of the cases that we've explored that turn out the best for the defender are cases where the defender called 911 before the shooting even happened. The The defender had time to say, if whether it's Melinda Herman, someone's broken into my house, and, and she actually called her husband, her husband called 911, and the thing goes down uh, while the operator's listening. Uh, I think we looked at the Gerald Strebing case, where he was on the phone with 911 when he fired the shots, and I think... Um, that's one of the reasons why he didn't see the full sentence that he could have been subjected to for shooting an unarmed motorist in the night with a with a rifle, right? We've seen Zach Peters, 
he called immediately after but uh the he the, the event is still ongoing while he's on the phone our own uh stephen maddox had, had attempted to call 911 before he his attacker approached him again for the third time and then he called 911 actually called him back after the incident and, and not all of these cases went perfectly even even the Zimmerman case that you and I worked on together you know George had called 911 or he called the police anyway before the incident happened and that puts uh, a time frame on things it puts things in context and uh yeah i've just found that when you've demonstrated the concern uh beforehand that goes an awful long way yeah we the, the rule is you always call 911 you're the first person to call 911 and one and uh, there would be rare rare situations where that wouldn't be the first and the best advice. Uh, there may be those moments, uh, maybe those situations where it's a harder decision to make and the decision there becomes, do I want to involve law enforcement because nothing really happened? No shots were fired, nobody was injured. Uh, it was a moment and the person that assaulted you uh, ran off. You have no idea who it is. It was a fleeting moment, and you have no reason to believe that they are going to call the police. So it's sort of like a defensive now, that's a display. You didn't fire, but you you drew the weapon. You showed the weapon, yeah. and they ran off. Are you going to are you going to call them a one on this? This is the question. So that's a calculated risk that you make if 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 you don't call nine one one and they do that puts you right back in that situation that we talked about early on, that now you're on the defensive, that someone has called and said, look, this idiot just pointed a gun at me, and you're now the focus. On the other hand, um, if you're convinced the person's not going to call 911, and the circumstances were such that you particularly, you don't want to invite law enforcement's participation or involvement, then it may be, it may be a little harder call, but the safe bet, of course, is it's reported. And if you the if there's been a discharge, whether mm -hmm. someone's been hurt or not, it's it's gonna be the right thing to call. Because remember, we did that. We looked at that case where that homeowner encountered a guy breaking into his shed, and when the guy saw him with a gun, ran off and he fired into the darkness as the guy fled, not knowing that he shot him in the back of the head, and the guy made it to the golf course behind the ramble behind his house and died. And, and he got arrested for that the next morning. Yeah, I don't know that, I don't remember the fellow's name. It was a Texas case, as I recall. And uh, that was one of those cases where you start checking off the boxes of how many things Can you do wrong. wrong. Right. How, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And ever, it did enough wrong that he got charged ultimately. Yeah. So, for a guy trying to break into his own property or onto his property, but he did everything wrong, including waiting until the next day to call the police after he discharged his fireman. All right, guys, thanks for listening through to the end. Big takeaway there is be the first to call 911. In our next episode, we're going to talk about steps three and four 
initiate emergency response and prepare for responding officers. Until then, be smart, stay safe, and take care.